Hey there, welcome to Board Game Hot Takes, the podcast where we give our immediate reactions to the hottest board games just minutes after playing them. My name's Tim. And this is Chris. And this is Steve. And today we're going to be giving our hot take review on the game we just finished playing, Dungeon Pets. But before we jump into that game, we do have some poll results to discuss. As always, I ask a poll on Twitter and on our Facebook group about board games. And this week I asked a poll that was a little bit introspective. And that is, does it make you feel bad or upset when a reviewer, podcaster channel says negative things about a board game that you love? And I, I was thinking about this. We released our episode uh, about a week ago that was about you know games that we were excited about or not excited about on the Board Game Geek top list of games. And I think we got a little bit negative on games that we hadn't even played, but just that we weren't excited about. And I got a lot of pushback from people that love those games that said you guys are crazy you're wrong about this and i was i was kind of curious if when we're talking about a game and we say negative things about it how does it make people feel how did you guys answer this question i do feel that if i hear somebody talking badly about a game that i like i mean it makes me wonder what's wrong with me why do i like this game if it's so bad what's wrong with them are they fools because they don't like the game that i do so i definitely i definitely get that i feel a little bit sensitive the same way you know if you're um if you're someone who picks the restaurant you don't want people going oh man this place sucks who who chose this one but actually one comment brian chandler had left a response something to the effect of it's not for me is one thing but to say bad things about a game like a game is bad or to use those general pejoratives is not a good look for game reviewers. And I agree with that completely. I try as much as I can not to make just general bad comments. Probably from time to time, I do say something a little bit snarky just for the sort of comedy value. Uh, and I'm not proud of that. I probably ought to do better. But I, I do get the comment. And I do think it is a good idea for us as reviewers to try to keep it, to try to find the good in whatever we're playing, as well as the stuff that we don't like. Before Steve answers, I want to just respond to that quickly. I was going to mention Brian's comment, and I get the general opinion that, you know, just saying something negative without at least explaining it is probably not a good idea. But I don't know if I agree with the idea that just saying it's not for me is always the right type of useful feedback. You know, there can be games that are objectively poorly designed or have you know, have design choices that are going to be a problem for multiple people. So I think you can say it's not for me if you think it might be good for other people. But I think part of our role as reviewers or as people that people come to to listen to points of view and help them decide whether they should buy a game is to be honest about whether a game might be flawed, it might have problems that could be negative for other people as well. So I get what Brian's saying there. I get what you're saying, Chris, but I also still think we have to be honest and not just say, hey, this game is great. It's just not for me with every single game. Yeah. And I don't disagree with that either. I think the way you kind of combine those two is to say, this is not for me and here's why. Because ultimately, I mean, the fact that we're saying things about these games that we didn't particularly care about or that we are not excited about, somebody's excited about them. So for whatever you got out there, there's somebody who likes it. So I have a hard time saying what's objectively good or bad, even though I may think it. I don't know if I should always say it. I think, you know, sometimes mechanics are clunky and sometimes production is less than optimal. I don't think that as a reviewer, there's any problem with pointing things, those things out. Doesn't mean somebody's feelings might not get hurt. When you have a favorite movie and somebody says, oh, that's the worst movie of that genre or that series or, you know, that was the worst actor that played that role. It's their opinion and they can, you know, they can explain why, but it's 
probably not going to change how you feel about their comments. You know, what are you going to do? But does it make you feel bad or upset when someone does that, Steve? I think there's always like a little bit of twinge when you like somebody says something negative about something that you like. Doesn't mean it can't be constructive, but sure. Yeah. Yeah. I I think that's right. And so here's how people answered on the poll. So when I asked, does it make you feel bad or upset when somebody says negative things? 6.7% said, yes, they're wrong. 40.3% said, depends how it's stated. And 53% said, nah, it's their opinion. So most people said, you know, either it's fine or it depends on how it's stated. And my perception on this has changed over time. When I first got into the hobby and I found a few games that I loved, you know, they're kind of the first games that I got introduced to and I bought them and then they're my, they're my, part of my collection. I was probably one of those people that went on BGG and rated them a 10 because it's like the best game I've ever played. Well, I played like three games. And so when I heard a reviewer talk about it and then they said, oh, this is, you know, this is a pro- this is a mess. It's not a good game. I didn't like it. I was yelling at the podcast. I was like, what are you talking about? That's that's not accurate. This game's perfect. You just played it wrong. But over time, as I you know just realized how many games there are and how many different perspectives there are, I actually enjoy hearing a different perspective on a game that I really like and see what other people don't like about it. Maybe why it wouldn't hit with somebody else I introduce it to. So my perception has changed a little bit there. Here's how some people answered, you know, some of the people that commented on Twitter. And you can find us at BG underscore hot takes if you don't already follow us on Twitter, or you can find our Facebook group, Board Game Hot Takes. Jeff Laflamme said, it's actually something I value because then I know more about your tastes compared to mine. So some people like to hear that on his feedback, get a sense for what your tastes are and what, you know, how they might agree with you in the future. Fog Brother said, I may get defensive even if I'm aware of the reviewer's preference in games. Saying a couple of nice things, even just a solid price point or box art on every game can save a reviewer some grief. And yeah, I, I agree with that. Chris has given me a thumbs up here as well. And I think we do that pretty well. Even the games that we really have not liked that we've featured on the on the podcast, we generally highlight the things that we still like about it and, and try to do that. Hope, hopefully you all catch us offering something positive in, in, in every situation. Nick Andrusiak said, only when they clearly got several key rules wrong and had a bad play experience because of it. I don't know if Nick was pointing that directly at us or something we've said. <laughs> Nick, I'd love to hear if uh, if you think we got some rules wrong and talked about a game in the wrong way before. It's completely possible that it happened. And then Rob said, totally their opinion, but that at that point in the episode, I interject in the discussion, talking to them out loud, yes, while I'm listening to the podcast. Futile maybe, but I chalk it up to Chris just being stubborn and not a strong active listener. <laughs> Chris, I think Rob just uh, called you out there. Oh my goodness. <laughs> I don't know why I didn't deserve that. <laughs> and then I will uh, just read out Brian's Chandler, which is pretty similar to what Chris said, but he said, I highly prefer it's not for me to general pejoratives. Terrible, ugly, boring aren't as useful in my opinion. I'm especially sensitive to negative reviewers who have never designed or published a game. And that's completely fair. I mean, every every game that's been designed, somebody's put a lot of work, a lot of hours, probably a team of people have put a lot of time into it. And we are just sitting back here, um, you know, talking about them. And we, you know, just definitely don't have the insight of the process and the challenges. So I think it's fair to at least raise up what's what's positive about a game and call out what um, what we have concerns with. But uh, yeah. All right. Well, great feedback, everyone. Thanks for responding to that poll. It gives us a little bit of thought on how we think about and talk about games in the future. And uh, hopefully we will not make you feel bad or upset in the future. Let's jump into a description of Dungeon Pets. In Dungeon Pets, and to be clear, that's pets with a Z, just for fun, two to four players are pet shop owners trying to breed, buy, sell, and feed as many prize pets as possible. But these are not normal pets. 
As the name suggests, the pets in this game are a wacky collection of oddballs with names like Snackity, short for Snake Kitty, and Baby Golem. Needless to say, caring for these pets is going to take a very special skill set. The game takes place over several rounds in which players will bid for the opportunity to put their imp employees onto various worker placement slots. Wait, imp employees? Does that make them imp employees? Well, anyway, the higher the bid, the sooner in the order the imps will head out to the market, creating the opportunity to snatch up the prime spots. Players will buy cages, food, and various other items that will help them care for their pets, which are themselves also available for purchase in the market. Once players have their pets back at the ranch, they'll need to keep the critters healthy and happy so they can earn points by showing their pets at exhibitions and selling them to discriminating buyers who are looking for very specific traits. But with all of that going on, the care and feeding of the pets is the mechanism at the heart of this game. Each round, players will draw cards commensurate with the requirements of their pets. Like regular cards, these cards come in several colors and feature several of what I'll very loosely call suits. Unlike regular cards, the suits here include things like poop, food, magic, and rage. These are the pet's needs. So, for example, a food card means the pet is hungry, and a poop card means that the pet has to, well, poop. Players will have to assign these cards to their pets, but more importantly, they'll have to ensure that they also have the means to take care of the needs they assign. So, for example, if a pet needs to poop, you better make sure you have someone to clean out the cage. If the pet's hungry, you better make sure you have their favorite food on hand. Meet these needs and you'll have healthy, happy pets. Fail, and they may die or run away. After several rounds of hopefully keeping the pets alive and scoring points through exhibitions and sales, scores will be tallied and the most successful breeder will be the winner. Dungeon Pets was designed by Vlada Chivadal and is published by Czech Games Edition. All right, well, thanks for that description. So let's start with the gameplay and mechanisms. Now, we've all played this game one time, played it on Board Game Arena. So pretty interesting. This is an older game from 2011, a game that's been on my radar for quite a while and I've been wanting to play for about five years. So it was cool to dig into it this week. Let's start with the uh, the gameplay and mechanism, Chris. So there's a lot of stuff happening in this game. A lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of stuff happening in this game. But I think really the centerpiece, and it's both, you know, the, the good, the bad, and the ugly falls on these needs cards. The needs cards that show the things that you will need to do to take care of your pets. Holy cow. I found myself struggling on the first play with this concept. And let me go back a second and get into that a little bit more detail because I didn't say much about it in the game description. Essentially, what you have to do is you, you have to play these cards that are color-coded. You'll get a, a number of cards you have to play for each pet color-coded, and it also has some kind of a need on it. It could be that it has to poop or it has to eat or it it's going to get sick or these various things. And then for each one of those needs, there is a way that you can meet that need, whether it's letting them poop in their cage or being able to feed them something, or if they need to play, having a toy in the cage or to have one of your imps play with them to keep them occupied. So there's all these things that you have to do. You're trying to not only identify ahead of time as best you can what you're going to have to do to take care of each of your pets, you're trying to buy cages based on that because they'll provide some things for your pets. It may have a toy or it may have some food available in it. You're also trying to figure out which of those needs are going to be 
important to buyers or in the talent show or the beauty contest, whatever they call it, where each of those needs cards is going to be reflected in some way in the desirability or lack thereof for your animal. So you may have one buyer or one talent show where they say, we want to see lots of poop. Believe it or not, that actually does happen in this game. Or we need to see a really aggressive pet, that sort of thing. I found myself so twisted in knots trying to figure out this puzzle. I'm curious to hear what you guys had to say about it, because I found that to be a true brain burn. Well, I mean, this game has a nice blend of mechanics, I think. It's not a a one-trick pony for sure. You've got your uh, bidding for action uh, space placement. Um, And I know Tim said that's not his favorite aspect of the game, but it's still something to do. And I I enjoyed the bidding component. So basically one of the mechanics is that each turn you have six possible actions you can take. And you have a number of available imps anywhere from three to nine, depending on how many you've got tied up on the board, how many of your relatives you've hired, stuff like that. For each of those six action spaces, you can designate as many of your available imps as you want. And then you can also add gold to those bids. And the gold plays two parts. Uh, The gold increases the value of your bid, but it also uh, is necessary for some actions. Purchasing a pet always requires gold to be part of your bid. You don't necessarily just want to put gold on your highest bid unless you know that buying an animal is what you're going to do with that largest action. Uh, You may want to throw gold on a smaller bid um, so that you can pick up a a cage late in the round or a cheaper animal. So I thought the bidding was one of the the many interesting mechanics of this game. And I'll let Tim talk about the need management since it seemed like he certainly mastered it better than we did on the first first attempt. I mastered everything about this game better than you guys. (laughs) Yeah, so let me speak to both those really quickly. The worker placement is tight. This feels like Agricola where there is, you know, maybe 10 things you can do on the board, but everyone is not going to do everything. You know, the most important thing you can do in this game is get pets that you're going to get into your dungeon and start taking care of them and selling them eventually. That's where you get all the points. And it's very likely that, you know, in our case, a three-player game that all three players wasn't even going to get one in the first round. I think Chris was the one that got left out in the first round in this one. But all of the worker placement is like that. There are so many things that only one person or only two people are going to be able to do. So you really have to be choosy. And that's what reminds me of Agricola. You know, you can't, everyone's not going to get wood to start building fences. Everyone's not going to get to play an occupation. And Dungeon Pets felt the same way. And I love it. I love that really tight worker placement. Now, the bidding aspect, when we were halfway through our game, I was like, man, I kind of wish this was just regular worker placement instead of the bidding worker placement. But it did grow on me a little bit over the course of the game. It added an extra wrinkle and extra planning complication. It was kind of fun. And once you got enough imps to play around with where it didn't feel so tight halfway through the game, then it started to get a little bit more fun for me as well. So I didn't mind that too much. But Chris is right. The core of this game is getting these pets and then taking care of them. And what's neat about it is that, you know, each pet's a little different. It's essentially just going to tell you how many of a specific type of card you're going to get each time and then how many you have to spend to take care of them but it could be any number of effects. It was hard to wrap my brain around as well. It took a couple rounds before I realized that the cards I was playing was not trying to respond to their needs, but actually telling us what the needs were going to be and then figuring out how to respond to them and, and how that was going to trigger with the, the goals and the benefits. 
it was tricky. It's challenging. I'm glad we played it on board game arena. I think a first play of this in person and dealing with all those cards and trying to think through how all of that fit and what you could do with them would be tricky. I think even on a second or third play, it would be, this game is not light. It's got a lot going on with it. So glad you called that out. That was the most important thing I think worth mentioning here. And the, the most unique thing from traditional worker placement, but I do love that it is a, a tight, tight worker placement game. So I want to go back to the things that we just talked about and make some value judgments this time. I don't have anything new to add. I just want to judge the things that we're, <laughs> that we're already talking <laughs> on. In terms of the needs cards, I had a bit of a beef with this and I didn't dislike it. I actually like this mechanism. It's really clever and it's really interesting. But what I found was that it made it so that there were so many variables to think about when doing something as simple as picking a pet or picking a card or picking a, a cage. You had to think about not only what you're pecking in need, you have to think about what the likelihood is that the particular need that you're interested in is going to come up on a card. So for example, it said uh, in the rules that you're more likely to have a pooper in a green card, which is more likely to be a vegetarian animal as opposed to a meat eater. So you want to factor that in. So if you're looking for poop, you probably want to have herbivores. But you're also looking at those things I had mentioned earlier, like the, the talent show, the beauty contest. I don't know why I keep calling it the talent show. The beauty contest and what the buyers are interested in. So you're trying to factor in all of these different things in addition to the abilities that you have, like what you're going to need to get for you know, food and toys and things. It felt like every decision I had, I should have a spreadsheet. And I think I made this comment about another game recently. I can't remember which one it was, but it felt like in each situation, there was a way to pick the optimal combination of things to accomplish all these different goals. But there's so many goals you're trying to accomplish. It felt like I could totally overthink the turn that I was taking. And like I said, I didn't necessarily dislike that. I thought it was actually pretty entertaining in a lot of ways. I think it lends itself really well to online asynchronous play because I can take my time and I can think about it. I can imagine that there's going to be turns where I just go, I don't care. I'm sick of thinking about this. I'm just going to do something. But it's definitely something you could spend some time thinking about when you're sitting there at the table. As to the worker placement, I was actually surprised at just how tight it was. I felt like there, was, there were instances where it actually got a little too tight. I mean, I definitely appreciate, Tim, your comment about having a a limited, you know, available options, you really had to make some thoughtful decisions. But there was at least once or twice, the game told us there was nobody that could take any move at all. We just ran out of spots completely. And it felt like there were enough times where I couldn't really do anything that I found that a little bit frustrating. I wish it had been a little more open than it was. Yeah. But one thing about that, which is really unique about this game too, is that if you didn't use your workers, there were opportunities to use them to take care of your pets. And sometimes you wanted to leave them back. So I often felt that I was like, where am I even going to put this guy? Wait a second. I'll just leave him back. Oh, now I just got someone to play with my pet or to, you know, to, to take care of the, uh, help him keep him in his crate or whatever. So that was an interesting trade-off mm -hmm. and very unique for this game too. Yeah. yeah. Good point. So those are called exhibitions, not beauty contests, but regardless, <laughs> <laughs> I was wrong both times. One one of the other interesting mechanics about this game was the caging system, right? So we talked about having to meet their needs. One of the aspects of that is having a cage that's the right size for the animal. And there's kind of two or three components here. All of this is touched by an overarching concept of this game, and that is plan ahead, but stay flexible. One of the mechanics here is that you have to have a cage to keep each of your animals in. 
and you start with a really weak, small cage, you can buy other cages throughout the course of the game. But the cages help mitigate some needs of your animal. Certain cages can hold creatures with stronger magic. There are certain cages can hold creatures with more anger. Some cages allow auto-feeding. Some cages allow auto-play. So the cages are variable, but the creature each round gets older. And as it gets older, its needs increase, but so does its value. And so you might say, well, I have a cage. I put my animal in it. Animal in it. Now I'll move on to buy some other animals. But you can't just ignore the fact that you put a baby animal in a cage and now the animal's going to grow up and you have to have some plan for dealing with those increasingly needy creatures. So I thought that was an interesting component of the game that I failed at quite badly. Yeah, it was hilarious once you got to three or four pets that were like four or five years old, all of a sudden you're drawing 20 cards in your hand, you know, 16 to 20 cards in your hand. You got to figure out how to manage 16 to 20 different needs that your pets have and what's the right one. And yeah, it was it it got to be quite a bit. One other uh, last thing I want to mention about mechanisms here. Before I even do that, I, I think we already made the record for saying poop the most times in an episode of Board Game Hot Takes, and let's hope that that's the most we'll ever say it. But believe it or not, that is an actual mechanism in this game. It's referenced in the rule book, and that is the terminology they use. So we may have to talk about it a couple more times. But the one other mechanism I want to mention is just the scaling by player count, which is a little bit unique here. They don't remove worker placement spaces. They don't change anything else, except they have these little blocker imps they will go out on the board and they rotate each round and there's a clear path where these blockers will go. So you kind of know what's going to be blocked this round, what's going to be blocked next round, et cetera. And and it was an uh, interesting way to handle uh, scalability, but a little bit frustrating. It just felt like some rounds things were more available, some rounds things weren't. And unless you were really thinking around ahead, you know, it could just completely throw off what your plan was. And uh, I just don't like having to manage an automa when I'm playing a multiplayer game, if I can help it. This was pretty easy. I think, you know, again, it just, you move an imp one space on the track in between each round, but there was a lot of other stuff to manage to upkeep during the game anyway. So I would have preferred if the scalability worked a little bit differently. I, I like how other worker placement games do it generally, where they maybe just re- remove or limit the number of spaces across the board. But, you know, this was, it was fine. It was okay. Let's jump into the theme and production of Dungeon Pets. Wow, what a cool thematic Euro worker placement game, especially for back in 2011, where everything else is about farms and city building and, you know, ancient Europe. Super fun. Uh, I liked it. I I liked the theme on it. I thought it was clever. I thought, you know, the rule book was cute. There's a lot of references to the animals and their abilities, a lot of humor in it. And that was fun. So I I enjoyed playing this game from a thematic perspective. It, It all worked really well. I agree. It was an incredibly amusing, funny game. I mean, they really did do a great job of adding humor into the gameplay and into the rules and into the art on the cards and the descriptions of the animals. And overall, it was just it was delightful, which is funny because, you know, I looked at this game at first. I'm like, this is going to be a real lightweight, silly game. And then I actually start because it has that look about it. It's kind of you know amusing and funny and goofy. And then we started playing it. I'm like, this is a heavyweight game that we're playing here. It doesn't look like that. But in a lot of ways, I think that actually made it more fun because you got to sit here and have this cute board and all these neat little things happening. 
also let you play yeah at the same time you're playing this good heavy solid worker placement game a couple of other things that i thought were thematically interesting there's a couple of worker placement spots that we didn't really talk about but that i thought were both interesting from a mechanic perspective as well as from a production perspective there was a spot where you could go to get more imps but instead of just being here's where you go to get more imps there's a little drawing on the board of imps getting off of a train i think it is and the idea is there that you're picking up your family members at the train station and bringing them back so they can work in your pet store there is also a hospital if you send in one of your imps to go entertain one of the pets i think it was if it needed play then these pets play rough and so your imp gets hurt and has to go to the hospital and so there's a hospital space where you could go to pick up your imps that had gotten injured previously by playing with the pets and you could also get another type of resource which is a a vial a potion that could be used kind of as a wild card to meet a need i just thought those were fun and amusing and interesting and they looked cool on the board so i just thought that was really nicely done yeah um aside from just like the fun styling of the art even though the board's kind of busy most of the iconography is very straightforward i don't think we ever had to reference the instructions to figure out what one of the icons meant. The colors are bright. The cards are easy to see. Like it's just an easy game to play, not from a a strategy perspective, but it's not constantly like, oh, let's go look at this appendix. Let's go look at this appendix. And I don't know. It just seemed like a lot of fun. Didn't hurt that it was on Board Game Arena and we had tool tips there. I always have to remember to call that out because if we'd been playing it in person, we might have had a little more issue with mm-hmm. it. But I agree. Cool production. One last thing I'll mention, the monsters that you pick up instead of just being a card is a little cardboard dial system so that you've got this monster. It's kind of an odd shape. And then there's a dial that you adjust to show that it's growing. And that shows how many uh, more cards you're going to get on how many more uh, things you have to pay with it so that was a neat component as well and the little imps are cool little uh, plastic minis from what i could see from pictures um so yeah very cool production here cool theme yeah i think for 2011 it, it kind of hit it out of the park and was very unique and i think special all right well let's jump to our final question and that is would you request to play dungeon pets again i sure would i had a lot of fun with this game it wasn't without its flaws I mentioned the confusing kind of or the over the overthinky part of managing your pet's needs. I do think that went a little bit far. It was a little bit too much of a brain burn. It was a little bit too spreadsheety, but I still had fun with it. I still enjoyed it. I really I really liked having to make those decisions about how I'm going to you know, what animal I'm going to pick, what cards I'm going to have to play on them, what I'm trying to do to sell these pets off to these various buyers. I enjoyed all of that. It also, I think, was pretty unique. I don't recall ever playing anything quite like this one before. It was pretty unique. And so it has a spot in sort of my gameplay universe that's not filled by anything else, which is kind of interesting because this is by Vlada Chavadal, who also did Through the Ages, which is one of my other favorite games, one of the ones that I played most last year. And I felt similar about it. It did a lot of things in a very unique way. Also things that weren't necessarily intuitive the same way that some of the things in Dungeon Pets aren't intuitive. But once you learn it, they're very enjoyable. They scratch a little itch in your brain that aren't scratched by a lot of other games. Well, um, so my answer is yes. Uh, I actually requested to play it immediately upon completion of the first play. Um, we didn't quite get that to pull that off yet, but uh, soon hopefully. The needs mechanic is a little complex. I think the first time anyone plays it, 
unless that's just how their brain's wired. It's going to be a little confusing and tricky at first, but I think a second, third play, that is not going to be an issue. And you're going to be able to really focus more on the strategy and the planning instead of the tactical, okay, can I meet the needs this turn? Like you're going to learn how to mitigate those effects, how to plan better. Overall, yes, can't wait to play it again. All right, cool. My uh, answer is pretty much the same. I really enjoyed it. I think this is going to come into regular rotation on Board Game Arena for sure. Uh, it is heavy for a worker placement game. It feels around the same weight of anachrony to me and that you know the worker placement part is pretty straightforward, but there's a lot of choices you're making throughout those placements to meet your goals for the round and for the end game. And that can get a little bit heavy to do too frequently. I think Board Game Marine is a great platform for it. After I've played it a few times there, I would even venture to playing it in person, but I would hope to not be the one running the game because there's a lot of upkeep. There's a lot of things that have to be uh, remembered between each round to get set up for the next round. And, you know, just it's a, it's a bit of work. Uh, I think Board Game Marine is a great platform. Chris, I'm glad you called out Vlada Shavadal, who has designed such a unique portfolio of games and Dungeon Pets is a great fit because I haven't really played any of his other games that were a true straight worker placement. And this is as close as I've seen of his, but it is unique for worker placement. But he's also designed everything from Galaxy Trucker to Codenames to uh, Mage Knight to, you know, Through the Ages, which you mentioned. Every game feeling different, every game feeling unique, and every game having some special sauce to it that made it, you know, worth revisiting. Everything that I've seen, at least, or that I've played by him. So, I, uh, I'm really glad I finally got a chance to play this. Uh, this was, there was a predecessor to this called Dungeon Lords. Um, and now I'm kind of interested in just checking that out, seeing what's different. Maybe that is close to this and that this is an evolution. I'm not really sure, but uh, be interested in checking it out. Anyway, glad I finally got a chance to play it and would love to play it some more. So with that, uh, let's jump into a couple of games that have been on our table right after this. Welcome back. So just two games we're going to talk about tonight. The game I'm going to start with is Joan of Arc, Orleone, Draw and Write. So if you have ever played Orleone, a lot of this will be very familiar to you. Orleone is a, a game where you're essentially each player is building a bag of workers. And at, during the beginning of each round, you're going to pull a certain amount of number of workers out and put those on spaces on your own player board to identify which actions you're going to activate. And then those actions are going to let you do things like move up tracks, move around this map and collect resources and set up trade houses. Joan of Arc, the Orleans draw and write is going to be very familiar if you know the, the main game. Each person's going to have a sheet of paper that's going to look a lot like your main Orleans board. On the right-hand side is a map. And on the left-hand side is a bunch of little things that you're going to cross off when you use a specific type of worker. The difference here is that each person isn't drawing from their own bag. There's a central bag. And at the beginning of each round, a certain number of chips are drawn out. I think it was four in a two-player game. And you draft them. So the, the person who pulled on that turn is going to draft the first chip. And then they're going to mark on their board what that action is going to do, what that worker is going to do. And then the next person would draft and so on. So a little bit of a draft. You can interact a little bit in that way by hate drafting. If you know somebody's trying to complete a row to get a bonus, you can stop them from doing that, etc. It feels like a lot of roll and writes in that you, you know when you write stuff on your board, there are going to be opportunities to get bonuses. You get to a certain point on a track, you get a bonus, and that might trigger another thing, which is going to get you another bonus. And so you can combo things up. And that's always fun with roll and writes. And, and I think Joan of Arc does a great job of it. But there are some advantages to the original Orleone as well, 
mainly the quick setup. Two minutes to get the setup and you're playing versus Orleone, half hour to get it set up, right? The playtime, about 30 minutes to get through this game. But it does give you a lot of the same feels. There are a couple other interactions for a roll and write. One is that if you mark off that you've bought put a trade house on the map, everybody else has to stop and mark that it's no longer available for them to put there. So you're kind of racing to these spaces. There are a couple other bonuses on the kind of the player areas that you're going to race to as well. And you have to tell people cross it off. You can't get that anymore. So there's a decent amount of interaction here. It plays very quickly. It takes away a little bit of the fun of trying to plan your actions out that the base Orleon does because you're not getting multiple workers and trying to figure out how to place them in the right combination, which was always a fun part of Orleon to me. But otherwise, I thought this hit the mark pretty well. Um, it even has a pile of building cards, just like Orleone has the building tiles, where when you place a certain type of worker, you can get a building, and that's going to give you a unique ability, ongoing ability, or a, a unique um, you know, kind of action that you can take. So you get a little bit of asymmetry that builds over the course of the game and is going to vary a little bit game to game. Overall, I thought this was great for a roll and write style of game. Very fun. Almost hit that Orleone feel, but a lot shorter and a lot quicker to set up. I wouldn't say it replaces it, but I think is a, a lighter, quicker supplement. If you like that style of game, I think you might enjoy it. If you like rolling rights in general, I think you might enjoy it. I, I had a lot of fun playing it. Tim, this one looks like a lot of fun. I'm looking at the rolling right board and it actually, to me, because it's probably a little bit lighter, like you said, it seems like it would be more fun than the original Orleans to me. So, but I was curious about the Joan of Arc aspect and how she comes into this. And as an aside, it's got a very amusing box cover where it's got Joan of Arc, a very cartoony Joan of Arc, like writing something on a wall, but she's like holding this like quill pen up by her face. So it looks like she's smoking a stogie, which is pretty doggone funny. But how does Joan of Arc actually come into this game? I think Joan of Arc is the solo player because you can play the solo. Uh -oh. And on the flip side of the board, you're playing against Joan of Arc. Uh -huh. So I think that's otherwise when I played multiplayer, she was not in the game at all. Right. It wasn't a character or anything like that. Um, so I think that's just the the solo player and they gave it the name to differentiate a little bit. Uh, it is Clemens Franz artwork, so you can accept a little bit of quirkiness with the, you know, the style of artwork, just like the original Orleone is. And Chris, I don't know if you'd like it more. I don't, I don't even remember why you hated the original Orleone so much, but we played that together so early in your introduction to hobby games. I kind of wonder if you might like it a little bit more at this point. But in any case, yeah, this was fun. A uh, fun little diversion. Um, nothing that's going to anchor a game night, but something that I would, you know, gladly play as in a shorter time period. What was the play time with like three or four players? I only played two player and it took us probably 30 minutes with okay. the teach. So, and, and, you know, okay. it's, it's a drawn rights generally a little, you're doing a little bit async. It wouldn't add too much. I'm guessing that this is between a 30 to 60 minute game, no matter what the player count is. Nice. All right. Well, the, uh, the game that's been on my table this week is seven wonders architects. And it is another iteration of the seven wonders genre. If you've played Seven Wonders or Seven Wonders Duel, the concepts are going to be very familiar. You've got your resources that you use to build with. You've got your blue cards that collect points. You've got your science cards that you use to collect matching icons and get science tokens. So if you've played any Seven Wonders, that's all going to be pretty straightforward. Kind of the main differences are that instead of trying to build multiple wonders. Each player is trying to construct their own complex wonder. And there's many steps involved in doing that. Most of the steps are involve either collecting a set of the same resources or a set of different resources. 
Um, so in addition to your standard building resources, you know, you got your paper, your flasks, your wood, your bricks, et cetera, your stones. There's also gold and the gold is a wild card. So you can use it for either making different matches or same matches. The combat system is a little different, but same concepts. Depending on the number of players, there's a certain number of doves. And when you draw a shield card with a trumpet or a horn on it, it's a horn, probably not a trumpet, you flip one of those doves over. And when all of the doves have been flipped over, you go to combat. And the way combat works is you compare the number of shields you have to the number of shields to each of your uh, adjacent opponents have. And you collect some points for each adjacent opponent that you have more shields than. And then at the end of the combat, any of your shield tokens that had horns on them get discarded, but you get to keep any shield tokens that did not have horns on them. So that adds a little bit of strategy. Um, when I see a, a selection of shield tokens or cards, do I take the one that, that doesn't have a horn that I'll get to keep the rest of the game? Or do I take the one that does have a horn or two horns that will accelerate the combat? There's a couple of interesting things going on there, but one of the great things about it is entry. I've taught it to four players now uh, in different game sets, and two of them are not gamers, really, and they both picked it up super easy. Everyone had a great time. I've had a great time playing with two players. I've had a great time playing with five players. I think it plays up to six, and uh, the gameplay is not heavily impacted by the number of players you have, which is nice. Uh, it's almost identical based on playing with two players or with six players. Everyone had a great time. It's easy to learn, and uh, it takes about a half hour, a little longer with more players. Five players, it probably took about an hour. Yeah. That was Seven Wonders Architects. I've had a chance to play this a couple times on Board Game Arena, and I think it's a clever, light version of Seven Wonders. Clearly, the designers were trying to find like what you know. Seven Wonders, for being a fairly simple game, is a little bit of rules overhead and a lot of iconography you have to teach uh, to people. And this definitely slims it down and makes it a lot more approachable, even for what was a, a very you know entryweight evergreen game. And I think they did a good job of it. And it's fun. It's fun and light. Not a lot of decisions to make right you're either picking the card on your left pile the card on your right pile or blindly off the top of a deck in the middle and so you know it's not like you have a lot of exciting decisions to make all the time it turns into a little bit of a race where you're just trying to get the most sets and matches but it's fun little decisions and it goes quickly this you know falls firmly in that light little entryweight almost engine building game there's not a lot of engine i guess going on in it but uh you know set collection it, it's fun i i enjoyed my couple plays of it not something i'd probably ask for but uh i i'd be happy to introduce this to people and you're right it's completely easy to get into there's one little fun thing in the production that i wanted to point out steve you had reference to the individual monuments that the wonders that the players are trying to build and that each player actually has a board in the shape of that wonder i thought that was awfully cool looking so if you had the colossus of Rhodes as your wonder for example you have a little board in the shape of the colossus of Rhodes, showing the tokens or the areas for you know tokens showing the different things that you need to that you need to develop in order to build that monument yeah and the uh the physical production is pretty neat um the way that they did it the box comes with seven player trays and then the main card tray and each player's tray holds their unique deck of cards. Each character's deck is slightly different. And the components that make their uh, wonder. So basically, you can just grab those things out of the box, kind of shuffle them up and hand them out. 
then each player has their all their pieces that they're going to need to play the game. And in the middle, you just have the common deck and a few other little things. I had no idea that the players' decks were different. Is that because like some of them are a little more focused on different iconography to help them build their wonder, basically? Definitely. Okay. So they each each of the characters focuses distinctly on a, on a specific thing. So uh, one of them wants combat. One of them wants science. And their decks are adjusted based on that. Okay, that's cool. When you draw from a, you know, if you've got an opponent on your left and an opponent on your, well, you can never draw from your left. But yeah, when you're deciding to draw from your deck or your opponent's deck or the central deck, you know, you can kind of determine what the likelihood is of a certain card coming up in the future based on what kind of deck they have. Gotcha. Yeah, very cool. All right. Well, I think that'll wrap up everything for this week's episode. Next week, we're expecting Adam to be back and we've got a pretty exciting episode to talk about. Uh, you're, we're going to be covering both the new Dune Imperian expansion, but we're also going to be covering, as an early preview, one the new Tapestry expansion, which will just be available to be discussed by reviewers starting the day that our episode releases. So hopefully, if you listen to our episode, you'll get to hear some of the earliest thoughts about the new Tapestry expansion, and we're excited to talk about it. Until next week, take care, everybody. Good night, all. Goodbye. Thank you.